I'm Steve Fisher. Douglas Wolk is a pop culture critic, teacher, and writer. So he decided to mix business with pleasure, reading 27,000 Marvel superhero comic books and creating a guided tour in one book. That book, All of the Marvels, is out now. And he's my guest on Life Slices. We're here today with Douglas Wolk. Douglas, who is Douglas Wolk? He's just some guy. (laughs) Some guy. Uh, So I write about comic books and pop music. I wrote a book that we're going to be talking about a little bit, I imagine, today called All of the Marvels, about reading all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics. I also teach comics history at Portland State University and have a podcast that is soon to come out of hiatus of my own called The Voice of Latveria and various other things. But that's that's the that's the gist of it. What is Latveria? Latveria is uh, the fictional nation in Marvel's comics that is uh, whose monarch is Doctor Doom. So the Voice of Latveria is nominally a Cold War era propaganda broadcast from the state of Latveria. And more genuinely, a discussion every week of one of Doctor Doom's comics appearances. And more genuinely than that, really just about whatever my guest that week feels like talking about. (laughs) When did you first become aware of Marvel Comics? Probably it was nine, ten years old. Like nine years old is when I started reading comics. Uh, I probably became aware of the brand names fairly quickly uh, that fall. I'd started buying some DC comics, you know, Green Lantern, The Flash, and Batman and stuff. And the kid across the street from me had these other comics that were weird and scary. And it was like Moon Knight and Daredevil, and they were different, and we lent each other our stuff. And uh, then it was all downhill from there. What was it about the Marvel? And I, I, I grew up with DC. I first became a Mar- aware of Marvel Comics when my parents sent me a care package at summer camp, and the very first Fantastic Four comic was in there. And very and nice, I, well done. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, my mother cleaned out my room when I went off to college, mm, and it's all, it's gone. So yeah, that's how they get. <laughs> so um, what what is it about Marvel that resonated for you? I was a DC kid. Like, I liked the Marvel stuff fine. I was reading all kinds of comics by the time I was 11 or so, because you know, I discovered that there was a comic store down the street, and then I started going there once a week. And after a couple of years, they were like, okay, Douglas, we're just going to teach you to use the register. I didn't see, and I still don't see on a micro level, that there is a distinction between Marvel stuff and anybody else's. There's a lot of the same creators working for multiple companies. That, quote, brand identity is not the important part to me. But the thing that drew me to it to write a book about is that it is one big story. All of the comics that they've published set in their main world from 1961 onward are set, they are part of one big story. Any story can inform any story that is published later on. They have never rebooted. They have never reset. They have never said, oh yeah, everything before this point didn't really happen. It's one continuous thing. And there's nothing else like it. That's what drew me to it to read for this book. There are lots of other bodies of comics work that are really, really important to me. But the thing about Marvel that made me want to write about it was its historical scope. 
We talk about the Marvel films and TV shows as this amazing universe that has this incredible interconnectedness, but that started with the comics. Yeah, exactly. That is one of the great things that the MCU got from the comics, that you could have all of these different threads of story and they would inform each other. And you could follow just one of them, you could follow a few of them, you could follow a bunch of them, and the more you read, the more they would see how they kind of talk to each other. Okay, so let's talk about all of the Marvels. And what was your goal with this book? My goal was I wanted to read all those comics, 27,000 plus issues from 1961 to, well, not only it started in 1961 and it was supposed to stop at the end of 2017, but actually I kind of kept reading uh, after <laughs> that. So uh, it's, it's more than that. But I wanted to read that giant half million page story as a story to see what it looked like, to see what it said about the culture that had made it and that it had reflected over the course of 60 years. And also, I wanted to serve as kind of a guide for readers. As somebody who has effectively traveled every inch of this territory, I wanted to be somebody who could, instead of saying like, okay, these are the high points, these are the 100 best issues, you have to read these, say like, here's some interesting little pathways. Here's a way to look at these things. Here's an area you might want to explore. I'm much more interested in what people who read the book want to see for themselves than I am in pointing out my personal canon. Comics are incredibly difficult to come by the old historic comics. There's a reason they sell for so much when they're auctioned off. How did you get your hands on 27,000 plus comics? Oh, they're not hard at all. Um, There are certain crazy collectible things that go for lots of money if you have to have the original printing of it in physical form in pristine condition. Among other things, Marvel has a service called Marvel Unlimited, which is effectively their Netflix-ish kind of thing. It is all you can read. And they don't have everything, but they've got tens of thousands of things. So it's very, very easy to find this stuff online. And beyond that, you know, I've been reading this stuff for 40 years. I had a substantial collection of my own. I have friends who have a collection. Like, finding the stuff was never the hard part. The hard part was finding enough hours in the day to read it. <laughs> How did you find the hours in a day? It was my job. Like, I got a book contract. And it was like, all right, this is going to be my full-time job. I'm going to read. I bet it will take me about a year and a half to read all these and then another year to write the book. And six years later, here we are. How long did it actually take to read them all? A long time. Um, (laughs) It it took a couple of, like, I was pretty close with that year and a half estimate. Uh, I figured like, oh yeah, on a, you know, on a solidly good day, I could read a hundred issues. There were not many days that were that solidly good. Like I would, I would get to a certain point. I'd be like, I need, I need to stop. I cannot take much more spandex violence. I, (laughs) I, 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 I've hit my, Hit my limit for the day. Gonna keep pushing, but it was my job. I was doing a few other a few other gigs. Uh, as I say, I teach at Portland State. Did some freelance writing here and there, but really, it was like, all right, get up, sit down in the morning, get on the exercise bike, whatever, and read. <laughs> it was great. I had the <laughs> best time. The best time. It was so much fun. Did you stay away from the films and TV shows to not get distracted? No, uh, I, can, I can tell the difference between a comic and a movie. <laughs> After, you know, 40 years of this stuff, like, I've had enough practice, I can tell that difference. 
I have not watched all the TV shows. I didn't watch some of the Netflix ones. I've seen all the MCU movies because my kid's really into them. And I like them a lot too. I read other things as well. Occasionally, I would permit myself to actually read a prose book. Really? If I'd I'd done a lot of, if I'd made a lot of progress, it's like, okay, I can look at something with lots of little words and no pictures. That's okay. So, and you didn't mind the the missing pictures? (laughs) Not so much. Did did you sit and draw your own saying, this is missing something? Mm, uh, No, I draw, I, I, yeah, no. Lord of the Rings, there's just no pictures. I understand that, or from reading something, that you did not necessarily read them in chronological order. How did you decide how to read them? By whim. I grazed. I did not read them in any particular order. If I woke up on a given morning, I was like, I'm going to read some Ant-Man this morning. That's what I would read. If I wanted to read a bunch of comics written by Chris Claremont, then I would read that. If I wanted to read some old romance comics, I'd read that. If I wanted to read some comics that Fin Fang Foom was in, that's what I would read. If I read something that was like, oh, this has a reference to a thing that uh, happened before. Oh, maybe I'll just jump back and read that stuff. Like, that's what I did. Nobody was ever supposed to read these things as one body in a single order. That's never how they were this. Nobody was even supposed to read all of them. That's not what they are made for. I, I, I read all these comics so you don't have to. You don't have to read them in any particular order at all. If you are reading a stack of comics, you effectively have a time machine. You don't have to experience the story in the order that the story happened. You can jump around. You can jump sideways, backwards, forwards. You have a time machine. Why wouldn't you use it? That's awesome. What kind of support did you have from people at Marvel? I did not deal with Marvel directly at all. This is not a Marvel official project. This is an act of independent criticism. It is me reading as somebody who likes to read stuff and write about it. What were some of your observations that you had reading through all these comics? The thing that jumps out most of all is that at every turn, they reflect the culture of the moment around them. At every turn. If you look at the early early 60s Marvels, those had evolved from a couple different lines of comics. They'd evolved from the science fiction and horror and monster comics that Marvel was publishing at that time. They also evolved from the comics about teenage girls and young professional women that Marvel was publishing. They evolved from humor comics. They evolved from westerns. They evolved from war comics. And they rolled all of these things together. But they were always reflecting the concerns of their moment. Those early stories are super, super concerned with the Cold War. They're super concerned with especially nuclear power, the mighty atom, radiation. Radiation does anything the plot requires in those stories. But it's not just this sort of vague radiation thing. If you look at the origin of the Hulk, for instance, the gamma bomb test goes off, Bruce Banner gets hit by it. That's not just about nuclear terror. That is specifically about the end of the atomic testing moratorium, which had happened just before Jack Kirby and Stan Lee started working on the first issue of Incredible Hulk. That is the moment. That is the thing that they were thinking about. If you look at Iron Man comics in the early 60s, they are always about... Iron Man comics for 60 years have been about how do we feel about the military-industrial complex? How do we feel about the relationship between manufacturing and the military? Because that is who Tony Stark is. That is who Iron Man is. He is an industrialist who makes weapons for the government, right? So at the beginning of the 60s, it's always about the Cold War. It is about, like, 
we're protecting ourselves against the communist threat. They never say the they say behind the iron curtain. They never say Russia. It's always behind the iron curtain. You get a little further into it. Late sixties, Vietnam is going on. It's going pretty badly, and suddenly we're not quite so enthusiastic about it anymore. Flash forward a couple of years. It's the early seventies. And there are students demonstrating, picketing the Stark Industries plant. You move a little further into the future, and suddenly it is a war between corporations who are looking for their share of space and tying that to their military manufacturing processes. You look to 2005 or so, drone technology starts showing up. And a couple of years after that, Iron Man stories military technology in Iron Man stories is much less about like, let's build fancier armor, let's build fancier weapons than it is about let's build surveillance technology. Let's monitor stuff, you know, control of information suddenly becomes the most important thing to technology. And that's 60 years of Iron Man comics that jumps out all of those things come out of the story. And that's, that's fantastic to see. To what degree did you notice an evolution in the characters? Oh, uh, to every degree there is. I mean, these comics, when they were created, were created as entertainment for 10 to 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds or whatever. And then their audience grew up with them. And it is not as if there are not comics for kids anymore. Sure, there's comics. There's tons of comics for kids. But also, I'm significantly past 50. And there is a lot of stuff coming out that is specifically aimed at my concerns, aimed at me as an audience. And the characters get more complicated, and the situations they're in get more complicated, and the history behind them accumulates and becomes this massive force in the story. You're going to see so much change. The early conception of these characters, God bless, you know, Jack Kirby and Stanley and Steve Ditko, and the people who created or co-created these characters because they came up with concepts that are so strong that you can elaborate them on them, elaborate on them any number of ways and they work. Spider-Man stories, you know, you can do a Spider-Man story 60 years after that character was conceived. That's amazing. Yes. And he's still a teenager. Uh, he, he's not actually. And Peter Parker is not a teenager. Miles Morales is a teenager. And I find it interesting. I mean, I just turned 70 and my birthday present was my grandson and I going to see Spider-Man. Did you like it? Oh, loved it. But yeah. but my 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 grandson and my grand all my grandchildren are into Marvel comics, mm -hmm. and my kids are, and I am. It spans generations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my kid and I kind of bonded over it ourselves. Like we still, you know, years after I started working on this project, we still read a comic together every night. That's that's kind of our thing. What has the reaction to the book been? It seems to have gone over really, really well. I've heard lots of nice things about it. It's apparently gone into a fourth printing. I'm delighted by how it's been received. And I know that that uh, Marvel fanboys and girls seem to take their Marvel lore very seriously. Has anyone called into question anything you've put in the book? Uh, Challenge you to a debate on something? Somebody caught a... Uh, an error where there was an issue number I referred to that was off by one. That, I think, is the only one I've I've gotten so far. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly hardcore about this, but I also think it's useful to not present a front of being hardcore. Uh, <laughs> the point, like, again, this stuff is for pleasure and fun. It is not for gatekeeping. It is not for saying you can't be a real fan if X. You can be a real fan if basically anything. 
If you think you're a fan, you're a fan, great. Welcome to the club. Here's some comics. Enjoy them. Tell me what you like. Now, this is a question actually comes from a friend of mine who's much more into, uh, more knowledgeable about Marvel lore than I am. And he asks, how would you distribute the credit for Marvel's success between Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko? <laughs> All right. So the story that I like to tell about this is there's a thing that Neil Gaiman says he's talking about the novel that uh, good omens which is a novel he wrote with terry pratchett right and he says like well the thing that people don't realize about good omens is i actually wrote 90 percent of that book but also terry wrote 90 percent of that book the other thing that i mentioned about the lee and kirby relationship in the book is that it was absolutely a creative partnership and it was absolutely not 50 50 we expect creative collaborations to be equal and they're just not and that doesn't mean that the person who is the smaller part is not absolutely crucial to it. The The comparison I make is Daryl Hall and John Oates. You know? uh, one of them is the front person. He's the person who's always in the spotlight. He's the you know, person whose voice everybody knows. Uh, he's the grand creative driver of it. And the other one is the person without whom the magic doesn't happen. And that, you know, Jack Kirby was the unbelievable creative powerhouse of that team. He was inventing characters, inventing concepts. It was just flowing out of his pen. He was doing most, if not all, the plotting for a long time. And without Stanley, the magic did not happen. Kirby did wonderful stuff on his own, but it does not compare to Kirby Lee. There's a fantastic book called Lee and Kirby Stuff Said that came out a couple years ago, which is just a collection of as many interviews as its editor could find with either Lee or Kirby where they're talking about how their creative collaboration worked. And whenever one of them uses the word writing, it appears in red because the way they used the word writing was completely different. For Stan Lee, writing was the actual words that appeared on the page, the language. That was his territory. That was his thing. That was writing to him. For Jack Kirby, writing was coming up with the stories, coming up with the narrative, how you decide to show it, how you move the story forward. It was what he did. As far as each of them were concerned, writing the comics was the thing they were doing, and that the other one wasn't really. And they were both right by their own definition of it. The pendulum has swung around in comics nerd world like oh yeah you know kirby was kirby was the creative genius and stan was just the guy who signed his name to everything which on the one hand is kind of true and on the other hand wow stan lee was an unbelievable force as an editor he was a fantastic he was fantastic at dialogue he was fantastic with language like but his real strength he was an incredible editor he was an incredible talent scout he was incredible at encouraging creators if you look at the work of Anybody who worked with him in the 60s, from Kirby and Ditko onward, you know, Don Heck and Gene Colan, uh, John Romita, John Buscema, all these people, there were people who had been working in comics for decades already, who in the years they were working with Stan Lee, absolutely blossomed. He knew when to say, like, yeah, give me more like this. And if you listen to interviews with, if you see interviews with Kirby's, with, with, with Jack Kirby, Kirby will say, like, Stan Lee, he never wrote a thing in his life. I never saw that guy write anything. I created these characters. I did everything. And if you look at interviews with other people who worked with Lee, they say things like, he was unbelievably great at encouraging creativity. 
he brought stuff out to me and you know, that was one of the most creatively fulfilling things I've done in my entire career was getting, getting to work with him. There's a great line from Gene Colon who says like, that guy couldn't draw a line, but he knew a lot about art. I learned a lot from him. And there's a wonderful, wonderful line that I actually quote in the book from John Romita Sr. where he says, like, it's no secret that I did a lot of plotting on those amazing Spider-Man stories, but after what Stan did to them, he can put his name above mine anytime he wants. <laughs> and everybody knows he's a con man, but he did deliver. A con man who delivers the goods. What's that? Like the story of Stanley seeing like the little guy on the surfboard in pages that uh, Kirby had turned in for Fantastic Four and going like, that guy on the surfboard, give us more of him. Now, with their passing, they're no longer part of the Marvel team, so to speak. How has that endured through the years? How has that managed to keep up the quality? They're not the only people who had talent. You know, there there is this whole generation of creators who came in in the seventies who had grown up on Fantastic Four and Spider Man and Avengers and whatever else, and who also had their own perspective and had their own ideas. And for a lot of the seventies, like the old Lee and Kirby comics, which are now being handled by other people, are very much just like keeping the seat warm. They're like, we're going to not mess things up too bad because it feels like, you know, they, they might come back. So they're never coming back. They were never coming back. <laughs> so where the action was, was these people who were coming in, the Jim Starlins and the Steve Gerbers and the Steve Engelharts uh, and the Frank Brunners, who just wanted to do something different and weird and fun and push the boundaries. And that spirit is what led to much, much more interesting stuff down the, down the line. There are some individual creators who really push things forward. Your Chris Claremonts and your Anne Nascentes and your John Burns. And then there's some people who just kind of like came along for the ride and modified or broadened the possible aesthetic for superhero comics in their own ways. And that keeps on going now. There are some people now who are just really pushing at the boundaries, really doing fresh, interesting, original stuff. And, you know, that's, that's what draws people to the medium, that you can do that. So in reading all 27,000-plus comics, mm -hmm. did you notice at any point those changes in creative minds behind the comics? Well, there's there's always people coming in. There's always people leaving. I kept I kept track of names. I saw, like when people's careers started and when they kind of drifted away, or in some cases, they never drifted away. But uh, there's not like very, very strict dividing lines. There are, there are a few that you can see. Like there's a shift that happens around 1990 or 91, which is right, right before the image crew happens. There's a few artists who are doing really designy, really spectacular work that in some cases it doesn't necessarily serve the narrative, but it serves the spectacle. They're making pages that are really fun to look at. And they became a selling point. And they became a selling point and at some point said, we would like to have ownership of our creations. We would like to have control and ownership and all the money associated with that. And Marvel, which is set up on a work for hire basis, was like, we can't do that. And so they all walked and formed their own company, which was Image Comics. But the visual approach that they had brought caught on really, really strongly in the space of about 18 months. Like you can see the shift going on. 
And right around that time, Herb Trimpey, who's a guy who'd been drawn from Marvel since the late 60s, very much in the kind of post-Kirby kind of mode, very kind of solid, dependable meat and potatoes kind of person, apparently came to Marvel and said like, hey, I've been working for you for 20 years now, and I'm not getting quite as much work as I used to. What's what's up with that? And his editor said like, well, uh, it's not what the kids are buying. The kids are, well, what are the kids buying? Oh, there's st- stuff that looks like this. And he showed them, you know, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee, and Trimpey was like, oh, I can do that. And so for the next few years, he was drawing you know, Fantastic Four Unlimited very much in a style that had just been invented a couple of years before. He was interviewed about it. He was like, it's great. You can learn all kinds of things from the young young folks. To my way of seeing things now, it seems like Marvel has greatly surpassed the popularity of DC Comics. Mm, I, I think that is a matter of movies. And I think that is a matter of the mind share that the movies occupy. And I also think that DC reboots, well, they've rebooted the comics, but they've rebooted their movies a few times too. They don't, it's all, it's not all tied together into one thing or the kind of the ends are kind of loosey goosey. Like they're new, like that Batman movie that's coming out soon. That's going to sell a lot of tickets. Like, does that say something about DC corporate? Not necessarily. They've got Batman. The, the MCU is very centrally driven. There are people whose job it is to make sure that it's all kind of of a piece. There's a guy who does the music supervision for all of the MCU stuff. And he's got incredible taste in music. And he uses pop music in super, super interesting ways in the movies and TV shows. Spider-Man Far From Home, when or No Way Home, which I, I saw uh, a couple months ago and it was in theaters, there is some use of pop music in the first 15 minutes that, that is a flex. Mm-hmm. That is just like, this is a thing that these movies do with songs that nobody else does with pop music. It's part of its identity. Is there, is there something about the characters? Is there something about the Marvel characters that seem to resonate a little more than the DC characters? Um, no. I mean, no. you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. What, like, don't impute too much to a brand. Don't impute too much to the logo that you see on the thing. The collective work of particular individuals, you can you can credit that with a lot. But I, you know, I mean, Marvel versus DC, like, which, which is better? Like, the, my, my response to that is always, like, I like both kinds of music, country and Western. What do you say to anyone who thinks comic books or graphic novels are for kids and not serious literary fare? There's a Michael Kupperman cartoon about, like, well, I say comic books are serious literature, and I'll punch out anybody who says different. Yeah. Comics are not literature. Comics are not movies. Comics are not paintings. Comics are a medium. They are an artistic medium that has an awful lot of history and practice behind it. You can do all kinds of things with them. If you're thinking about comics as specifically this genre of superhero stories, it's still real big. (laughs) If you're thinking of comic books as being what they were 55 or 60 years ago, you might want to get yourself up to the present date. There is stuff that serves the same function that comics did 55 or 60 years ago. There is stuff that serves a completely different function. That's really all there is to it. 
if that is an argument that is coming from people who nonetheless go to see all the Avengers movies, hmm, yeah, the, no, no, uh, maybe find out a little bit more about the thing you're talking about. All right, I'll retract my last <laughs> my last question. Is there any question about Douglas Wolk or Marvel Comics that I haven't asked that you would like to answer? There is nothing that feels like a void that desperately needs filling. But I'm also happy to answer any question, no matter how granular or nerdy you've got. Where can people find more of your stuff and your podcast? I am at douglaswolk.com. The book, All of the Marvels, is available wherever fine fine bound pieces of tree pulp with ink on them are sold. And uh, the podcast is voiceoflotveria.com. Douglas, thank you so much for being part of Life Slices today. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone goes out and gets your book. Thank you so much, Steve. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 